0: this episode of the Skiff Meetings podcast, the podcast for curious professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Miguel Nevs, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Skiff Meetings. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Simon Toulis, Managing Director of Event PTY. The episode revolves around how events make an enormous contribution to society, and we talk about how great events start with great briefs. We talk about what the business events industry needs to do to be understood and recognized, We talk about the unfortunate impact of politicians who don't really understand business events. And we talk about why a fair and balanced association representation is important. And we talk about how getting recognized as an industry depends really on event professionals valuing what they do and wanting to be valued for what they do. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation, and I invite you to check out the other episodes of the Skip Meetings podcast. Now for a word from our sponsors. PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CBB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of this gift meetings podcast. And today I am delighted to be speaking with Simon Thulis, the managing director of Event Pty Limited. Simon, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me on.
0: So Simon, um, we've only met really just now, but we've uh, we've kind of communicated a little bit uh, about the Australian, um, the challenges currently in the Australian events industry, if you will, or business events sector. Uh, but I'd love you to start by telling us a little bit about your, your story with events. Uh, and I always ask guests to start where they first came across the industry. So when you first sort of realized there, there was this thing called the, the, the business events industry.
1: Look, I guess I started as an 18 year old as a lighting person. So that's a very long time ago. That was in a time known as the 80s, which are very different today. It was a very analog world, I'll just put it that way. Um, And I guess the first business event that I was exposed to would have been a Ford tractor show when I was 19. So 1983. So, launch of a new range of tractors. um, and the production company was Cameron Vernon-Weston, who were one of the really pioneers of business events in over here in Australia. So that was probably my very first one. Um, and then I guess over the years, I gradually learned that there was there was an industry there. So I guess my journey started from a whole range of events from, on the technical side. So, I mean, you might go from something like the tractor launch to pointing a follow spot at David Bowie or Talking Heads or a major television show or all sorts of things. So that gave me um, a really interesting insight to a whole different variety of events Um, and then ended up in about 1990 doing some work for the peak body of the music industry here. Um, And that was probably, and I would sort of say it's a business event. Um, And that was the simple brief was, Simon, can you put together a bit of a day where the whole country celebrates Australian music? Um, It's in 10 weeks time. And we didn't have a lot of money. Um, (laughs) That's quite a brief. Yeah, so that was sort of looking from the start of, golly, how do we actually get a whole pile of events happening all around Australia and involve a whole pile of people um, to create something which was big, which we then set about doing. So, I mean, nowadays, I guess we'd call that an umbrella event or an umbrella promotion, which had lots of different event components under it. Um, Can
0: Can I ask you, so it sounds like you kind of started in the production side. And you did all sorts of different events in that sort of production, lighting, sound, sort of production side. But then it sounds like you've sort of moved over to the organizing or did that kind of come naturally? How did did that kind of transfer kind of happen?
1: Um, Look, it did happen reasonably naturally. I mean, I started on the technical side, then with those companies ended up more in the sales and marketing side and project management. Um, And then I guess that first Australian Music Day 1 was my first time where I could say I was actually organising the whole the whole event so it was sort of a gradual transition I would love to say there was a big plan looking back I could explain it as there being a big plan but it was sort of taking opportunities as they popped up or making opportunities happen as they, they went along to sort of find what the next thing would be. So I guess I was always attracted to organizing the whole thing. Um, so I guess it was sort of an, a
0: natural transition. And so so today you, you run your own company. Is it still mainly focused on production or are you more on the kind of business and conferences side? Um, Look, I've for a long
1: time done the whole thing. So you'll get a brief from a client, which might be as simple as um, we need to reset and rebuild the relationship with our franchisee community. We want a series of events to do it. What do we do? So I guess for most of the last few decades, it's starting with a gr- brief like that. Sometimes they're longer, but often they're just one or two sentences. Um, and then it's creating the whole event from that, working out what the overall strategy is, um, the branding and everything. Obviously, the venues, moving people around, and then the whole production and content side of it as well. Yeah, so it, it's sort of been sort of the whole the whole box and dice, starting with the very much the strategy.
0: Yeah, that's always good to hear. Starting with a strategy is is a good point. And it, what would you say sort of your breakdown of kind of clients are? Is it more government kind of sector, associations? What would you say that? Yeah. Breakdown is?
1: Um, look, it's varied over the years. I guess if I looked at the, back at the last 15 years where, probably 80, 90% of my work has been business events. Um, A lot has been automotive, so automotive launches, conferences, dealer meetings, all of that. Quite a bit's been in in retail, did 12 years of events for 7-Eleven and the like. Um, So, yeah, automotive retail has been a lot, but still with some public events, music events, brand activations and, and the like thrown in for good measure. Yeah.
0: And a, a kind of a fun question, but a serious one at the same time. When you speak to friends and family that don't really know the industry, how do you explain yeah. what you do? I
1: think like everyone, I struggle. <laughs> um, you can you can reel off the statistics, like an event I did a few months ago and say, well, we had 50,000 people and three kilometers of barriers and 300 police and 600 volunteers and try to get them a to understand all of that logistics. So you can talk about the numbers of people, but you'll still talk to your mum. who'll say, oh, I know you've got that conference coming up in three months time, but have you got anything to keep yourself busy until then?
0: <laughs> Brilliant. That, those kind of <laughs> questions you know, make you laugh, but really kind of make it very clear that people don't necessarily understand the work that goes into these things. Uh,
1: they, they don't, and that, that's, that's one of the real challenges, I think, for our industry.
0: Yeah. So what made you fall in love with events? I mean, I assume you're in love to some extent, or at least you like what you do, but do you, can you identify what, what is it about kind of running events that makes you interested in it? Um,
1: yeah, I guess where it started when I was about eight, I think, my older brother and I put on a Christmas concert in the living room for our parents and grandparents. <laughs> so that was my first event. Um, and so I guess it sort of all made sense from from there. Um, I liked entertainment, so a lot of the earlier events were very much entertainment-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I guess I learned that events could create change and really affect things, and whether it was changing political opinion about things, public opinion, change within organisations. And I guess that was one of the things which, I, I mean, I love the show side of it, but actually seeing what they can do and what they can achieve is what makes it really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, that. I think a lot of people share those kind of stories that at a young age. So let's come to the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, you know, you have this pretty successful career uh, by you know, all means. Um, but of course, uh, what is it now, four years ago? Uh, things went a little bit different three, oh, it uh, a bit. it's, it's the stress, you know, the, the PTSD still affects me. Um, Absolutely. so things went a little pear-shaped. Uh, I think Australia probably suffered more, or at least took a, took a, a harder beating than most being locked down for so long. Um, yeah. could you just take us through that journey a little bit? And uh, hopefully it's not too traumatic, but I'd love to hear kind of how you coped and, and what you were able to do to kind of make things work because yeah. you're you're still around. So, so we'd like to hear that. Absolutely. Um, well, I guess it was pretty
1: confronting because up until then, we all thought everyone loved events and the event industry, everyone loved coming to our events, have their photos taken, all of that. Um, and then there was that day in March, 2020, where it all stopped. Um, And all of a sudden, we discovered that we'd just been left for dead, that all of these people who'd loved our events and governments and the like, weren't there for us. Um, We may have raised, all of us would have raised millions and millions for charities and other causes and supported an amazing range of things through our careers. But when we as an industry needed something, there was nothing. Um, So that was pretty confronting, um, we also soon learned that governments really didn't understand what we were um, or who we were. So there was no real support. So I guess a few months in, and that was probably June, July, after seeing really nothing was happening to change our situation. And, I mean, I'm, I, I won't cover the physical impacts across our industry because everyone knows what it was like that um Businesses had to effectively stop running, laying off lots of people. Freelancers had to get work outside of the industry and so on. Everyone knows that story. Um, so I guess halfway through that year, a bunch of us got together and decided we should try and do something about this um, for ourselves. So we formed the Save Victorian event campaign. Um, and I guess that was using everything that we'd learned from events to try to change the situation we were in Um, and so working out how do we involve as much of an industry as we could to do it because we were a handful of people who were broken (laughs) Um, so there's only so much a small group of people can do but if we could get hundreds and hundreds of people from across the industry participating and doing stuff emailing politicians making phone calls sharing information for stories that we would have far more impact. And obviously, that won't come as any great surprise to event people because that's what events do. They're all about involving people and getting people to participate and contribute. Um, And so we started that campaign um, and went through the process of putting, or both trying to educate governments and put pressure on governments to better support us. Um, I guess one of the really confronting things there was there was a meeting in November of that year and obviously pandemic had been going for a while and it was really biting um, with the key government people and there's probably 200 people from across events, arts and tourism. And the opportunity arose where I could ask the simple question of, well, why isn't the event industry receiving financial support like the arts, sport and tourism are? And so the very senior government person's simple response was, because the event industry isn't a real industry. Um, My next question was, well, asking why aren't business events included specifically in all the health restrictions? Because we sort of fell between the cracks. And the response from his to IC was because business events aren't a real type of event. Um, obviously, in Australia, pre-COVID, business events were worth $35.7 billion a year when there was over 400 of them. Um, so that sort of gave an indication of just what our challenge was, that we were just not recognised for um, as an industry or for what we did. And in many ways, we were really valued only in terms of the hotel room nights we delivered to the tourism industry. There was no real... Um, understanding of the role we play in changing businesses, in innovation, in all of those other things that business events are largely about, which, yes, they do happen to fill some hotel rooms, but that's sort of the byproduct of it all. So we went on this quite considerable journey, which included a parliamentary inquiry and all sorts of things to actually get governments to understand and then also the media, what the event industry is and what we all do and particularly what business events are really about and what is the critical role that they play both in terms of society and in, in economic terms. So that was, yeah, it was quite a process um, and probably, the well, easily the most challenging project I've worked on career to date.
0: Well thank you for sharing that and I think there's there's a lot to unpack there. Um Yeah. So what was the outcome of that? What were you able to achieve through through all of that or is that still ongoing?
1: Um look what well, I think we achieved a few things. One people realized we existed. People eventually admitted that we were an industry and that we played a key role in the place. Um, It did help getting some financial support and other things like that. Um, It also gave people in our industry hope and a feeling that they hadn't been completely forgotten because they were being talked about. They could hear our industry being talked about on the news on a very regular basis. Um, So there there are a number of things there, but being understood and recognised as an industry um, was a pretty key part of it
0: that yeah i think that's something that is a challenge everywhere in the world um but but it's good to hear about these kind of initiatives happening in different places
1: yeah
0: yeah so um wanted to jump a little bit around but i want to actually jump straight into the the commonwealth games because i think there's a really interesting uh, topic there we did a story recently about the commonwealth games uh and how yeah. the victorian government basically said they're too expensive. We thought they were going to be around 2 billion Australian dollars, and they're actually going to cost something like six or seven, and decided <laughs> to step away. Um, and I think from the outside world and the press kind of perspective, the view was well, that's actually probably quite smart because that sounds like a ridiculous amount of money, and we're not really sure if these Commonwealth games really make sense. And that's at least a view from the outside world. I don't want to get into sort of political discussions necessarily. I don't think that'll necessarily help us. But I'd love to get your take on that on sort of what what you were actually seeing, because I think you were seeing it quite differently to what we were seeing.
1: Uh, absolutely. And it's it's sort of taken a while for us all to completely understand it. But if you sort of go back to that little bit before I was saying that there was someone who said the event industry is not an event industry and business events aren't a real type of business event. Mm-hmm. Um, those two people went on to two of the most senior roles running the Commonwealth Games.
0: So we yeah, ended that, that, up... That's a bit tricky. Like how do you, how do you make that work then, right?
1: Um, yeah. And that's sort of sort of continues on with what's before that we weren't valued as, as an industry for what we do and we weren't valued for the skill sets we had, which meant that when the government went off to do the Commonwealth Games, they didn't think that they needed to get a whole bunch of us in there early, that the CEO and many of the key people had sort of no or little real operational background on major events, which which is astonishing. Um, when the com games were done here in 2006, the CEO had delivered countless Grand Prixs and he brought in a team of people who many of whom had worked on the Sydney Olympics and a whole bunch of things. So it was a really solid team. Um, so I guess we started off with people who thought that they understood events, um, but perhaps they didn't. Um, and so they went off on their merry way with a relatively short time timeframe. Um, and the games in some ways came about because of the impact of COVID in Victoria. It was a way to drive economic activity for regional areas, but it was also a way to shut up the event industry, which was pretty vocal at that stage um, by saying, well, okay, we're doing this big event. So see, we're doing something for you.
0: Yeah. Um, do, do you think that, that that was um so I'd love to kind of unpack what you mean by they didn't have the experience is it just that they weren't you know organizing public events themselves all the time and kind of went on and, and kind of did the budgets without that kind of knowledge but also um this idea of giving people i and forgive the expression but it sounds like throwing a dog a bone sort of like throwing the events industry of Bowen kind of saying, hey, we're going to bring the Commonwealth Games. You guys are going to be really happy. Do you think that motivated that kind of decision to to take on the Commonwealth Games more than it should?
1: Um, It was part of it. It was also part that it was um, an election later that year. Um, They needed to keep some of the regional seats. So to do something like that in regional areas would have been very popular. Um, But to go back to the experience thing, I guess as event people, we all know that there's a lot that goes into events from a strategy and every other point. And to make events work, you really have to get the foundations right. Um, So on this one with people who didn't really have experience working on major events or many events generally, they were sort of flying blind through much of the process. Um, so if you read the business case when it finally came out, you'd sort of spend five minutes looking at it and you'd see things in that which would just leap out at you thinking, oh God, how, how, how did they how did they miss that? Um a, a simple one was accommodation that if you're in a regional area, a lot of the people working on the event have to be accommodated. Um In the business case, they thought they needed 2,155 beds for all of the people working on it and the media and everyone, whereas there'd been a report looking into regional games done a couple of years earlier, which estimated that need 42,000 beds. Um, So as everything's gradually um, fallen, fallen out and we've gradually learned more, I mean, we learned that for many months, the government was negotiating to try to get 10,000 caravans from the caravan industry to accommodate 50,000 people. So it was some of those basic things that they really hadn't thought through, where's everyone going to stay? how's everyone going to get there? So there was a lot of really fundamental stuff, which if people had had event backgrounds, and not necessarily event of that scale background, they'd just look at it and think, ah, right, they've forgotten about
0: that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've seen some reports from Australian news channels about, I believe it was Ernst Young, or at least one of the big four was kind of involved with the government in putting together the plans. And it sounds to me like they went about it very much from, from an accounting perspective of, well, we're expecting this many athletes, so times that by X number, and that's how many beds we need. And never really, like you said, never really consulted with people that have organized this type of events and underst- understood what, what the needs really were.
1: Yeah, yeah they, they did have some specialist people involved and Ernst Young, I believe, were largely given the numbers to then collate them rather than doing that themselves. Um, but I think part of it was that they were working on such tight timeframes Um, that they really didn't have time to dig very deeply. Um, So what they would provide would be very qualified. Um, But again, if the people right up the top really didn't have the comprehension of um, things not quite being right. um, But then they also had probably, and I'll be careful on this, they probably had the client from hell. um, And as on any, any size of event, you know what this client is where, Um, The event's starting to get organised and they say, well, actually, could we do this and could we add one of those to it and maybe we could bring another 50 people in from that. Um, And so on this event, they had a government which kept sort of saying, well, maybe we could move that swimming pool to that field over there and we could add this sport and we can add that. And so a whole pile of things kept being added even though no one had actually stopped long enough or had the right people involved to work out what all the original things would cost. Um, So once they did bring in the really serious people towards the latter part of that year, I'm assuming they all looked at and thought, Oh God, how, how, how is, how is this even, even possible? Um, And so whether, I mean, we no one still concrete knows the exact reason why it got knocked on the head. I don't think anyone believes the numbers were 6 or $7 billion. Um, that just doesn't make any sense. But I think the killer was most likely logistics. So having a, accommodation for both people working on it as well as the public to go and visit, um, transport to be able to get people there and around and everything, and a number of those other logistic things that... I think they just, by the time they worked out what the real logistics were, they discovered that what they were trying to do just wasn't wasn't possible, um, short of moving some of those components back to Melbourne, where we all we have all the infrastructure anyway. But for political reasons, they weren't they weren't willing to do that. I guess their calculation was there will be less grief from walking away with a good excuse like the financial one than for breaking their promise to the regional people and taking
0: stuff back to the city interesting there's a lot of a lot of politics yeah. a lot of psychology there i'm sure
1: so i know yeah. that
0: you did a, a a senate inquiry right and what right. what did you tell the politicians was it was it this or was there was there more to it um look in
1: many ways it was this it was that events require people with real skills and real experience to organize them. Um, And it even goes back to the simpler things like that, that a project has to have a clear aim. And that's on any event. All of the stakeholders have to agree on that clear aim. Um, And all through that planning process, you've got to stick to that clear aim. You can't do what happens on many events or tries to happen, which it grows in like topsy in all directions. You have to be really, really focused. Um, another event thing is that you don't make commitments until you understand the costs and the logistics. Um, this one was so rushed that they didn't really understand that till many, 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 many months after they'd gone to contract on everything, Um, whereas they shouldn't, yeah, that's just a standard event thing. You just don't sign off until you really understand what you've got yourselves in for. Sounds like events
0: 101, right?
1: uh, It is events 101. And then the other thing is, if the situation changes, you adapt, you find a lateral way to solve the problems. Um, And I guess for many event people, when they saw it get knocked on the head, the common thing was, well, why didn't they ask us? There are many better ways that they could have done it had they talked to us. Um, In that we know we can build temporary structures, temporary infrastructure, move people around. I mean, that's all um, events 101 stuff. But, yeah, when you look at the reasons for failing, it's some of the most common reasons why Hmm. conferences product launches and any other type of launch fails. It's just this was a bit more spectacular.
0: (laughs) Is there, I mean, you know, there's millions of events every year around politics, but it does seem like this sort of mix of political energy or political reasoning and, and kind of logistics is a bit dangerous because if you're if you're motivated and you, and you want to kind of go in one direction or the other, then it really, they don't live very well together, right? Because you can't logistically make massive changes suddenly when political energy shifts, right?
1: Look, I, I think it would be one of the great challenges with projects like that, that you would need someone very, very tough at the top of the event to push back on the stuff that doesn't make sense. But again, we, we all face that. I mean, we've we've all had those moments with our clients where we may have to sort of read the riot act to them and explain to them that, look, we can do what you're asking, but it'll put your event at risk. Um, and I've certainly had a number of moments in my career like that where you actually have to be pretty brutal with them to say, do you want your event to be successful? If you do, this is what you need to do. Otherwise, we can do what you ask, but the whole thing might go pear-shaped. Um, I've never had that happen.
0: <laughs> of course. But um, so in your experience, I don't know how much you know about the teams organizing or the teams behind it, but you don't feel like there was a strong enough leader from the event side or the logistics side to kind of put their foot down and say, you can't make these changes. Like that wasn't happening as far as you know.
1: Um No, no. And with the government here, it would be very hard to do it. But I guess part of it was also if you don't have the really seriously experienced people, and particularly in the foundational stage, they probably won't understand the consequences of those changes as they're being made. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and again, that's one of the reasons why you don't get your A-team in 12 months from when you start thinking about an event you get the A team involved when the client first starts wanting to talk about an event because mm-hmm. the decisions you make at that very first stage affect the whole project so that's yeah. when you need um really good people involved otherwise yeah you, you can get in strife and that that goes
0: for for every every type of event get the good people in early absolutely do you think it still makes sense to run the Commonwealth Games in Australia somewhere? Um, look, there's there's two bits to
1: that, because when the games, when the government announced that they were going for the games, um, I cautioned against it um, from the perspective of here we were an industry that's rebuilding, We don't want something which will give good support in four years' time. We want something that will help get money into businesses much, much sooner than that. So there was always, for me, a question mark as whether that was the right way to deal with the challenges we all had coming out of the pandemic um the other side of it which is very much an event side of person side of it is once you've committed to something you just don't pack up and walk away you find solutions and find ways to make it make it happen um and i know we as an industry feel that very deeply that this has happened in our place and an event has just been walked away from yeah. like th- They didn't exhaust all opportunities. I mean, the event could have largely be done in Melbourne for a much, much, much smaller price with little issue, but um, it didn't didn't happen. As far as could it be happening somewhere else in Australia? Absolutely. The Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast in 2018, they only cost $1.5 billion, all the infrastructures there it wouldn't be hard to do the Commonwealth Games here. And at least then as the country, would be living up to the promise that we made to the 50 or so countries around the world that compete in the games.
0: Yeah, I looked it up. There's 74 apparently, but uh, it's... 74. Uh, yeah. Uh, a lot of them are very small islands and other kind of nations that only take part in a few sports. I think they're, they're, they're the big ones.
1: Absolutely. And, and many of them, never um really get to go to the olympics or other things yeah. um so this is actually a really big deal for them and it's also i guess it's the largest event where the para olymp athletes and the able-bodied athletes all compete together so it has some special some fairly special aspects to it
0: I have to admit, as a, as a sort of non-Australian or UK or anything like that, it feels like a an event that may have run its course. And I don't want to sound overly negative, but it does sound like a strange event in the sense that there's only a small set of nations that get to compete in it. But yet yeah. it's incredibly global, right? So you have Canada, India, Australia, the yeah. UK, all kind of competing. Yeah. And so it feels very exclusive, but not in a way that other nations sort of really want to be part of it, because everybody, you know, all the kind of real high end athletes have their tough calendar of events. And then some, you know, a few then do the Commonwealth Games as well. So it sounds from the outside, you know, I love the idea of events and putting out events, but it does feel like an, an event that that may be a little bit old fashioned, dare I say?
1: Yeah, look. Possibly, I, I think it always with events. It always comes back to why you're doing it in the first place, um, and that's with with every event. Um, and did everyone go into it with the right ideas for what they wanted out of it? Um, and and that's that's the that's the really big question. So I guess it can meet many sporting aims. And I'm not a sporting person, so I I can't claim to fully understand those. Mm. Um, I guess. When you look at the event trends around the world, the trend is more towards owning your own event that you can do on a regular basis rather than doing one-off events. I mean, that, that's a big trend for our, our industry.
0: Yeah, it just does sound from a, also from a sustainability perspective, because the countries are so far apart and then there's that sort of Commonwealth connecting them, it feels like a strange yeah. kind of group of uh, you know fans and people coming together that wouldn't, you know, like normally have the European Championships or the Australian yeah. Championships, you know, and there's sort of like a, a regional connection there that I think makes more sense. Yeah. But with that, go
1: ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, there would be quite a uh, clusters from different regions, but yeah, it's it's sort of, um, from from all around the world. So it, it, it's an interesting one like that.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting legacy one. The, the British Empire Games was was the original name of them, right? And it sort of comes through and very much in, in the Commonwealth idea.
1: Yeah. But again, I, I guess I always just come back to that whole thing of when you go into events, do it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And everyone sh- should be on the same page on on what those reasons are and what you want to achieve. Because yep. as soon as you all start going in different directions, um, events all start to um, have have issues.
0: Yeah, it does to take that kind of strong leadership. So one, one area that I really want us to touch on a little bit is, you know, what I'm reading from this event is, okay, there's a lack of um, recognition of the industry. There yep. is definitely a, a political versus logistical, you know, push and pull there that, that's really tough to manage a lot of times. one area that we haven't touched on that much yet is this idea of legacy and it's become very very popular amongst association events and sporting events and all sorts of things this idea of legacy where you run a major event or even a you know small conference but the idea of leaving a legacy and that might be a knowledge legacy in case of sporting events a lot of times it is the physical legacy the equipment the stadiums the locations and some knowledge and some experience and also some tourism legacy you know introducing different parts of the world and I know these games were very much planned as we're going to spread this out over Victoria. So you have these four, I think, regional hubs uh, yeah. and and not Melbourne, You know, very intentional. I think you've mentioned this a few times. So Melbourne, for political reasons, like we know we can do it in Melbourne, but we did it in yeah. 2006, I believe. We don't want to do that again. We're yeah. going to spread this out. And it sounds to me like this sounds very good from a political standpoint, you know, you're going to you know, revitalize these regions that maybe aren't as dynamic as Melbourne or don't have as much income. And you're going to leave this great impact. But suddenly you realize there's no infrastructure. And of course, the costs of putting this infrastructure in place, particularly like you mentioned the caravans and that accommodation, which is so important, just isn't there. And you can't build a, you know, 1000 room hotel in a small location that just isn't going to be used afterwards, nobody's going to invest in that. Right. So I'm kind of seeing this as a bit of legacy gone wrong, you know, kind of like we wanted to build all this legacy, but we didn't realize how much it was going to cost. And there's stories of Olympic venues pretty much all around the world. Every single Olympic uh, other than maybe the London Olympics has tens of venues that are basically underused and just, you know, sort of white elephants or whatever you call the elephants just sitting there. Right. Um, is this how you read? Am I reading that wrong or, or is there something there?
1: Um, Look, it's it's part of it in that the games are meant to leave a legacy. And I guess where the Victorian ones went a bit strange is that, again, I guess for political reasons, rather than expanding an existing swimming centre in one location, they decided to build a swimming centre in another location and build two 50 metre pools and a diving pool. And then at the end of the games, they're going to rip out the two fifty-meter pools and convert the diving pool into a community swimming pool. So they had some really strange um, legacy things. I am, I am
0: not a swimming pool construction expert, but that sounds like an incredibly wasteful way of, of doing that. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah, one hundred and ten million dollars to come up with a small community pool was not really the best way of of doing things. But I guess another way to look at the legacy side of events like that is if, I mean, the Sydney Olympics was a very good example of leaving a legacy for our industry um, in the, that it was a games where they actually used a lot of local event companies, um, rather than often what happens is they'll be the same people circling around the world. Um, And a lot of companies actually launched themselves onto the world stage from that. So there are quite a number of companies which sort of grew to now they work on major events all around the world. So from an event industry perspective, the Sydney Olympics was a really interesting example of of what a legacy can be for um, an industry. Um, The com Games in 2006 was probably less so because a lot of the Sydney Olympic people came in and worked on it and moved on, um, which I can understand them doing that. They decided they wanted the best team available. These people had delivered a brilliant Sydney Olympics. Um, So I guess there's also that looking at the legacy side for an industry um, and... I guess we'll never know what would have happened with the Victorian Games, but was it really going to have the same sort of legacy as some of the others have in terms of profiling our industry, allowing the industry to rebuild itself after the pandemic? Because um, just the sheer volume of people that would have needed to be found for our industry so that we're ready by 2026, that that's a huge thing. Um, at the end of what... Well, the the main bit of the pandemic, I mean, we're estimating we'd lost three quarters of the technical staff in our industry in Victoria. Um, so that's a slow rebuilding process. So an event like the com games would have absolutely accelerated that. So th- there are, there are many aspects to legacy, um, but not sure they fully understood them all.
0: It sounds like from the, at least from the physical legacy, that the projects were not quite um, thought through in the best way, but at least from a, from a staff and from a knowledge perspective, there may have been some great benefits, but we probably will never know because we're a little bit too early to, to kind of find out how everything was going to run, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So wanted to go back to another, another uh, story that we ran, which was uh, something that's come out uh, as a very positive story, this idea of these three Australian associations uh, merging. And I'll go through the names of the associations. I know there's there's kind of acronyms that make it easier, but there's the Australian Association of Convention Bureau, the Australian Convention Centres Group, and the Exhibition and Events Association of Australia. Now, of course, these to me are just long names of associations. I'm sure they mean a lot more to you. And they all merged to form the Australian Business Events Association. And from the outside perspective, largely kind of with a sort of press release kind of fed to kind of the outside world was this is a great success story. The Australian industry realized that having all these associations didn't maybe give them the voice that they needed with government, which was sort of what you were saying before, and it sounded like this was a great idea. But I think you're not so sure about this being so, at least so smooth and so easy to kind of merge together. And and there seems to be some some cracks happening. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're seeing this?
1: Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess representation, particularly to government was a massive issue during the pandemic. Um, And many of us in industry got together and did it ourselves. Um, because the existing associations, and I get into a lot of trouble when I say this, um, didn't do as much as perhaps they should. Um, And I guess part of that comes back to the transition that's happened. If you look at business events, we've gone from the traditional conference where it was the attendees send their info to the PCO, the PCO sends out information that you need to know, and then you trot along to the event at the right time and whatever. Whereas I guess the modern business event, it's actually engaging the attendees early on, it's involving them with the process, and it's making them participants in the event. Um, So they're, they're two quite different ways of doing it. So I think it's looking at how we go from what was the traditional association, which is very top-down sends information out to more of, I guess, the grassroots driven where it's actually actively involved in the industry and letting them participate in it. And so I guess that was one of the things to come out of that pandemic. So I guess I look at it and think, well, has anything really changed? Or are we just in the traditional old style of association, which is very much top down? Um, And on this one, it's also a bit more complicated because there are two other associations, Meeting and Events Australia, which is really the largest business event group at the moment, and the Professional Conference Organizers Association. And so they're both still running as associations now in competition with um a b
0: so i guess okay. so would I, you uh, want there to be a five association merger or is that not the point here because because like what i'm hearing you say is yeah. for representation i guess bringing people together is good bringing association together is, is probably a positive thing yeah. but there isn't necessarily this harmony and sort of everything kind of fitting together right there's different needs for different people
1: yeah, no, we've gone from different groups which looked after different pockets of the industry and having the Business Events Council of Australia sitting above them all to um, Baker at the top is gone and one group is sort of competing with the others. So it's sort of a, a bit messier now. Um, but it also comes back to that thing of, and we saw it a lot during the pandemic, how do you represent the interests of your people, to, particularly to things like government? Are the interests of small business owners the same interests as the government-owned convention bureaus and government-owned convention centres? Um, and th- and they've, they're very different. Um, but you also have the complications of when you're dealing with government, um, if you're tied to government or funded by government, there's not that much you can really say when it comes to candid conversations. Yeah. Because if you want to keep your funding, um, you toe the you toe the line. Yeah. Um so and is that, that what's
0: happening now with the new with the new three merger association?
1: I, I guess it's something which has happened. We've seen through the last few years that if the key people involved uh, um work for the government, government funded or the government's a big client, they're very limited in what they can say and do. Um, And sometimes you need to be able to say that. And then in some ways that's been the traditional role of an industry body to be able to say or to have those conversations which individual businesses don't want to because they don't want to get a thumping from the government (laughs) as, as individuals. And so I guess when you're looking at this one, when it's, um, the exhibition people merging with the government, largely government-owned convention bureaus and the government-owned convention centers, that's already mixing a lot of very different interests in there. Um, and yeah, if can can you really represent the small businesses if you've also got to be keep yeah, keep the governments yeah. happy as well. And, it, and that, that's, that's a really hard one.
0: Yeah. It, it sounds like so this overarching body, you, you call it BECCA, I think, the, the Business Events Council. Yeah. BECCA existed until this merger happened. Okay. So why do you think that didn't work? Because that sounds like a more reasonable model, right? You have different associations sort of looking after different specific units. So the, the convention centers yeah. and the convention bureaus. So why do you think there was this need to to merge? Because it does sound like if you had all these and they were all kind of yeah. members of this, you know, federation of associations, that sort of seems to be a a more, I guess, um specific to each uh kind of need model. Um why why do you think that that wasn't working?
1: Um I I guess as an industry we've never needed much from government. There's little bits of tourism-related funding here and there. There's work done to help attract international conferences and all of that. But as an industry, we would never really needed much from government in terms of policy. And so once COVID happened, all of a sudden we needed government support to be allowed to trade, to get support so we didn't go broke and all of those things. So all of a sudden we needed real support from government And the old structures had difficulty in dealing with that. Um, I don't think they really understood the political processes that in the old world where you're just wanting that little bit of tourism funding, um, you can go along and have a meeting every so often with the bureaucrats and they'll eventually stamp it and on you go. Whereas if you want major policy changes with government in this day and age, um, it's more than asking the bureaucrats. You've got to do grassroots thing. You've got to get onto local members of parliament and you have to run media campaigns. And that's the way that you get change. Um, and I don't think the traditional bodies were, and it's whether they weren't willing to do that or didn't have the skill sets to do that, but it meant that there was sort of very limited in what they could do during the pandemic, just because it's it's a very different Um, world now. And I'm sure it's the same around the world. You can see a whole bunch of different industry groups when they run campaigns with government that, yep, you'll see it all in the media. You'll know that they've got their members on the cases of all the local members of parliament and they're doing the normal policy stuff as well. So it's, um, I guess it's adapting to the world we live in, which is a world where maybe we'll never need anything serious from governments again um, but I think we learned from the last few years that we don't want to leave that to chance that if something happens again we want governments to know who we are and to understand us um, and that requires a different a different approach a different skill set and certainly if you're a government if you're board members include people employed by the government, you'll be very limited in your ability to go on the television news in the evening and demand things um, because you'll get in a lot of strife for that. Um, so I, I guess it's it, it does need to change so that our industry can get much more support than it has and just to be seen as beyond just being a little bit of the tourism industry um, and that was probably one of the biggest fights that we had in the, the tourism industry. We're happy to have us as with that little business event bit there, whereas so much of what we do isn't tourism-related. We're driving change in businesses. We're driving innovation. We're driving a whole bunch of things, and absolutely some of our events have tourism benefits, but it's not the reason why my clients would spend a million dollars on having a company conference or whatever. Um, so it is how do we continue to change how we're perceived as an industry so that we really are valued so we don't have a debacle like the Commonwealth Games ever happening again. They should be thinking, right, we're doing this major event. How do we get the best event people in a room to do it? But that didn't happen because we're still not valued as an industry to that degree.
0: It sounds like you have a lot of ideas in this area, and I almost feel like you should run for a leader of the all the associations in Australia. Right? Is that something you're thinking about? Um, not not really. <laughs> I, I, I
1: guess I've always been a relatively low key member of my industry. I've spent most of my career just getting on and organizing events. I guess I only started doing things when we just saw everything was going pear-shaped and people had to step up. And I guess I had dealt with government a bit. I had dealt with media a bit, so I didn't have a government client, so I had less to lose than some.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can see that, that, how that works. Any... Last thoughts about how we make that happen, because you have a lot of, um, you know, things that you'd like to see improved. But obviously, this isn't something that you can do overnight. How do you, how do you educate the government, and how do you set up association structure or campaign structure in a way that you can put something in place that works if we are in a situation like COVID again?
1: Um, it starts at a personal level. We all have to value what we do. Um, As event people, we're all maybe it's just because some of us are Australians, but we're all a relatively low key industry, a few flamboyant exceptions, but we're an industry that just quietly behind the scenes makes extraordinary things happen and happen a way that very few other industries can make happen. Um, But we don't often value what we do ourselves to the degree that we should. And therefore, people in government and other places don't necessarily value us to, to the degree they should either. So I think it starts with us as an industry and people in it deciding that we really want to be valued for what we do. I mean, as an industry, we make an extraordinary Um, contribution to society, and whether that's in business events, whether that's community events, whether it's the many other types of events. Most people's lives in any country are touched by what we do in the course of a year, one way or another, but we don't value what we do enough. And therefore, as an industry, we need to value that, and we need to be very proud about that. Um, and so I think they're sort of the starting points, because I guess the key thing that I learned is once you sat down with politicians or media, and I sat down with dozens and dozens of them, and talk about what we do, they're all really interested and quite excited about it and quite amazed by the, all of the different skill sets we have of all the different people that are involved with the business event, and um, but they've never really heard about that before. And I guess for me, there's a bit of head scratching of how did we get to a pandemic and really no one understood um, what we do. So as an industry, we really need to um, value ourselves and what we do and then put effort into communicating that to, to others. I mean, we do that with our clients to varying degrees. Um, I, I think we're sort of all a bit too laid back sometimes with our clients that our clients take us for granted a bit. Of course, Simon, we'll get that across the line. That won't be a problem. Um, but what we do is pretty special.
0: That is a great message. I, I really appreciate that. I think it's true. And it's we are the people behind the scenes most of the time and and so being behind the scenes doesn't necessarily make it very obvious the hard work that goes on behind the scenes um a- absolutely but
1: i mean i know from my experience we change the culture of countries of com- companies we deal with we often change political opinion we might change public opinion on things we do really serious important stuff mm. um and it, but again, it's not net, we, yeah, Not not everyone values that to the degree that perhaps perhaps they should, and that and that starts, I, I think, with all of us, and then it's sort of building from there, which is hard to do because we're always running from one project to the next project to the next project. Um, but yeah, that that's the start. Being um, proud of what we all do as an industry.
0: I think that's an excellent message. So I'm going to wrap up there. Uh, Simon, really appreciate you talking with us. Uh, I think this has been a really interesting conversation and your thoughts on the Commonwealth Games, Australian associations, and just the industry at large. Really fascinating. So I appreciate your time. Wanted to get your recommendation for someone else who should be on the podcast. Maybe we can continue this conversation or maybe we can head in a different direction. Yeah, look, a guy by the name of Anthony Bastick would be
1: a really interesting one. Um, He, I guess he comes from more of the public events background, but did work on Olympics, Commonwealth Games, and all sorts of things. But a lot of his events sort of fall in that sort of area between public events and business events, um, which is sort of a really, really interesting area. So it's sort of outside of conferences, but events often involving the public that deliver commercial outcomes which is what business events are about so I I think he'd he'd offer some quite interesting perspectives because I guess the one thing I would say if if I could ever give anyone advice particularly at the early stages of their career is to get involved with as many different types of events that you can because you'll learn a heap from them.
0: I like that perspective. Yeah, definitely understanding how different roles impact different events and how the industry all moves together or in, or in different ways, I think is, is very valuable.
1: Absolutely. And and you get to steal from each of them <laughs> Things that might work in the on music festivals actually have relevance for business events and conferences and, and vice versa. So this is so much you can learn by getting involved with a, a
0: really, really broad range
1: of events and event people.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation and the fascinating conversation. Simon, absolute pleasure speaking to you and uh, wishing you all the best and uh, keep in touch. Thank you. No, it's been
1: great to have a chat. Thank
0: you.